Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm your host, J.D. Wilson, and today on the show, we've got Brittany Bryson, who is an LPC at the University of Memphis. She has also got her own private practice, and we're going to talk to Brittany today uh, about several different things, but uh, one of those being racial trauma. Obviously, what we've seen over this last uh, few months, particularly this summer, has been uh, another spike in the conversation in uh, not just America, but the entire world as it, co- as it pertains to racial justice, um, both systemic and situational. Uh, Brittany talks with us about the uh, definition of racial justice just so we can have a starting point for the conversation. She also talks about uh, ways to begin to parse through that in your own life uh, or to help those around you in that process. One of the most helpful parts of this conversation is obviously uh, the awareness We can't get help for ourselves or others unless we're aware of the need for that help. Um, And we can't be aware of the need for that help unless we're aware of the warning signs and the symptoms of uh, a need for help. And so in a a time in America where this conversation is happening uh, more and more and uh, needs to be happening more and more, we felt like it was a, a great time to have Brittany on as a guest. Uh, she's really great. You're going to love her. Uh, and we're also uh, going to talk a, a little bit about uh, election season coming up. And uh, don't worry, we are not going to endorse the candidate. We're not going to be partisan uh, in this podcast. What we are going to do, though, is talk about the need for civil discourse and then even starting points for doing that. Obviously, with working um, on a college campus, Brittany is at the epicenter of oftentimes a lot of strife and a lot of uh, controversy and a lot of hard conversations around both politics, uh, justice, um, and just controversy in general. And so uh, at a place, college campuses, that typically tend to be very fiery and passionate she is helping to kind of lead the charge in how to have uh, civil discourse, how to be able to have conversations that aren't going to be steeped in emotion, but can actually preserve relationships even amongst disagreements. And so uh, it's a really great conversation with Brittany today. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it. And uh, stick around at the end. We've got some important information about uh, upcoming shows and a, a series that we're very excited about. So enjoy this now, our interview today with Brittany Bryson. All right, we're back with Brittany Bryson, LPC uh, at the University of Memphis and uh, at her private practice as well. Uh, no big deal. Just a little bit of overachieving there, right? <laughs> um, so Brittany, let's, uh, let's kind of pick up uh, here. So obviously, um, you working with college students, working with, um, uh, you know, folks in, I guess, like millennial, Gen Y kind of uh, generation mm-hmm. um, during this time in history is a monumental task, right? So uh, you've got students of color, international students, majority culture students uh, coming from all different places, all different backgrounds, all different stories um, during (laughs) a global pandemic and and what is really going to be marked in history as a a turning point in the conversation about race and injustice in our country. And so I'm wondering you know, in your experience so far, I know the school year is young, obviously, um, but in in this season of uh, COVID and um, justice conversations, do you 
you know, what, what has been your observation in terms of the racial trauma that some of your um, clients have endured and maybe even you yourself, um, you know, having been a Memphian uh, and African-American and having grown up in this city um, as it's evolved and changed? You know, I wonder what your thoughts might be on racial trauma and, and just uh, for those of us who are not familiar with that term or with the, the origins of it, can you kind of talk through some of that with us? Absolutely. So let's, uh, we can start in maybe probably different places, but we'll start with what is racial trauma just to get a broad definition. So it's a cumulative like effect on someone's mental and physical health in connection to racist experiences or racism in general. This affects people of color in various different ways when they either directly or indirectly come in contact with an event that was spurred by a racist Act. So they could experience it themselves or see it on TV. And that effect can impact their day-to-day life. And it looks very much like PTSD. That's really good. Yeah, that, I think that's helpful. I think PTSD in the last few years has has come to a lot of the forefront of conversation. People have a reference point for that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I guess clinically, they're pro- the definitions are probably hand-in-hand, hand, right? They are very similar. So we look at PTSD as symptoms of uh, increased anxiety, hypervigilance. We're wanting to avoid certain places, people, places, and things. We have intrusive thoughts. We have low self-esteem. We have effects to our sleeping, our eating. Literally every part of your being in your day is impacted sometimes by these events or people or things that are happening around you. And it can get in the way of school, work, um, family relationships. Uh, even things that your goals you have for yourself can be impacted just by simply whether it's watching a video or going to the store and being watched over, being specifically on a college campus. I do kind of want to call attention to, although we're talking more about racial trauma, this is not something new at all. I was looking at one of uh, another article from before and the uptake of racial incidents on college campuses has gone to all time high since 2011, wow. spiking specifically uh, in 2016. Interesting. Well, actually Normally not, it does. not interesting, uh-huh. like predictable. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Spiking sometimes during election years. And of course, higher education has been a point of sometimes societal change and, yeah, and progress yeah. towards the future. So there are a lot of people coming to these universities and they clash because they feel so strong in their perspective and feel educated and, and have these ideas. They immediately go uh, against one another higher education also is a place where we would want academic freedom so these conversations could be held but i think we are still challenged to sometimes have them safely and respectively amongst each other yeah let's talk about that for a second so from Mm -hmm. i guess from both the psychological standpoint and just from your experience having kind of observed this over the last few years uh that is a massive need um, mm-hmm. in terms of education right now. Uh, and I, I, I know that myself, like I've been asked this a lot. I work with college students as well um, mm-hmm. on the side. And one of the biggest questions that I've gotten lately, and I'm sure yours is the same, is how do I even approach these conversations with dignity and respect when there is such vitriol in the world? Do you have kind of some pointers or, or some like starting points for ways that we can have uh, you know, civil discussions where we're not being dismissive of each other, but we're also not just kind of laying down and just sort of letting people walk over us in conversation. What what, what would you say to those thoughts? So I say it depends on what role you're in, right? So are you the speaker or are you the listener? 
So as a listener, um, sometimes in the higher education dynamics, as a listener who is perhaps a, pers- a person of non-color, maybe a white person or, or someone who doesn't identify as being a person of color, it can be very challenging to sit and listen to some of the narratives that are being said, especially if you've never been exposed to it before, if it's all brand new. It can be jarring or sometimes very disruptive to the assumptions you have about your own world. And whenever something disrupts our own world, it, it agitates us. And sometimes that agitation comes off as being, like you said before, dismissive. So let's look at what we can do to prepare ourselves for that. So having listening ears and 3D eyes, right, is something silly I came up with. (laughs) Um, But listening ears. So using your ears to listen to learn, not just to be nice and not just to figure out what you're going to say next, purely just to learn. So it's kind of taking, and I get this term from um, a school of thought called dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, having a beginner's mind. So being very fresh, very new to it, open, as if you were a child looking at a new color. Like, this is amazing. I am fascinated by this. I want to take all of it in. I want it to be something, a part of my life. So creating a space within yourself to learn this information for the purpose of incorporating it into your world. Not to negate it, but welcome it. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, you're you're looking at, right now, we're we're in kind of the the crunch time of election season. And so we're, mm-hmm. we're in September and we're um, in a very quick sprint toward November um, mm-hmm. where we're going to be seeing disinformation a lot. We're going to be seeing, a, like you talked about, a bunch of agitation and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. When we are trying to, uh, when we were trying to think about how that's affecting the brain and how that's affecting our mm-hmm. um our kind of day-to-day conversations or is there any advice on the clinical side for how to be able to keep your sanity during a season like this um, when, when the world seems to be kind of in constant upheaval? Yes. So that's, you go right into fight, fight, or freeze, right? Our body's natural response to anything that is sort of threatening, maybe a bit strong to our survival, but just really uh, challenging us on our survival. Our brain, our uh, alert system in our brain, our amygdala will immediately go, you either fight or you flight or you run away or you freeze. And you do one of these things to make sure you are protecting yourself. That's what your brain is telling you you're doing. So the idea is to calm down that alarm system to make sure you're able to still function and, again, have those ears, have those eyes that are able to take in the information for what it is, which is information, so you can learn and change. So I'm thinking of grounding techniques, breathing techniques, sometimes even just turning off the TV and set down the phone yeah. so you can take a break <laughs> from it, right. uh, get a relief from it, go outside, walk on the ground, smell the air, feel the grass, do things that connect you with the earth. Again, it just depends on what your preferences are as far as what you like to take in. Yeah. But I'm focusing on self-soothing when it comes to de-escalation of emotions. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I think for a lot of us, and, and especially, you know, uh, interesting demographic of our listeners are that we do have a you know decent number of um, college, young adult age listeners. We also have a lot of listeners who have kids of college or young adult age. Um, and so uh, as we're finding out a lot of times right now, uh, oftentimes those parents and those 
kids might have differing viewpoints about what's mm-hmm. happening in the world. And so I think this is helpful yeah. to hear, even from a parent's perspective of like, oh, yeah. uh, you know, when I can, when I can notice these things in my child, even as a, as, as an adult, like here's some mm-hmm. ways that I can kind of help them to, yeah. uh, to process through this time and not be, not become consumed with the constant information that we're seeing. So I think when, when we talked about earlier about how to prepare yourself for these type of conversations, perhaps this can go for parents too, as you sometimes feel a disconnect from kids having 3D eyes. So when you see kiddo or when you see, um, or when you're in conversation with someone about challenging narratives or challenging words, having 3D eyes and to me means looking at someone, not just in this moment, which is the present, but also looking at the past and in the future. So seeing them for the accumulation of their experiences they have before, now, and hopefully to have next. And just to understand that our experiences as people of color, as Black people, isn't just necessarily 2020. It's everything prior to 2020, 401 years ago, up until now, that we have dealt with, experienced, and been continuing to deal with racial trauma for all these years, not just, again, 2020. This is just when we're talking more about it. Well, it's interesting to think about... Uh, we talk about racial trauma, we talk about uh, political activity and activism and protests mm-hmm. on college campuses. And mm-hmm. all of us can immediately uh, conjure images from the 1960s, from mm-hmm. you know, 1915s and 20s and 30s, from the 1850s, 1860s. And so I think we, we can very easily think through it from a historical perspective. These conversations have been going on for a long time. And yeah. I'll speak from a, a you know, white suburban viewpoint, which is how I grew up. And there's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. I was born into a family in the suburbs and that's totally fine. I can't do anything to have changed that, nor would I want to, right? Because it shaped my perspective and and who I am. So what has been helpful for me then, uh, someone who did not grow up in sort of a cyclical racial trauma um, that was being kind of handed down generationally, Mm-hmm. I I didn't believe a lot of what I would hear purely because it so contradicted the stories and mm-hmm. the um and the narratives that I knew of from my family right. and my family's history. Um right. and so what has been helpful has been uh hearing other people's stories. And we talked before we we started recording today about how uh it's really easy to dismiss one person's viewpoint. Uh but when the viewpoints of all the people of a certain demographic that you talk to ring of the exact same tones, it then starts to help to sink in like, oh, you know, I think there is something here, right? And so right, uh, I know right. for, for me, those uh, those viewpoints are, are difficult to change because it's hard to unlearn what we've been uh, taught yes. by experience. And so uh, one of the most helpful things for us, honestly, um, has just been having uh, not just uh, not just reading the books, not just listening to the lectures, uh, but having friends who are different than mm-hmm. us to share their experiences. Yeah. Because uh, when I see George Floyd, uh, when I see Jacob Blake, when I see when I see these stories of of black men who have lost their lives or been you know life alteringly maimed by um, injustice, I I immediately am not just thinking of. Uh, my story or my upbringing because it doesn't connect right. in that way, right? I now think of my son. I now think of mm-hmm. our friends. I now think of, you know, friends, colleagues, coworkers of mine who uh, fit that same profile. And it it changes yeah. completely the way that I see these things, right? Um, yes. So it is, it is incredibly, um, yeah, it's incredibly helpful to have those peer relationships, peer conversations. Um, 
thinking along those same lines, uh, there's a big conversation about uh, when it comes to racial generational trauma and Mm -hmm. um, looking in communities of, uh, of whether you call it lower opportunity or poverty or um, where there's a, where there's an asset gap or whatever. Um, When, when it comes to uh, that generational racial trauma, is there a a way to kind of help give people a framework for how to understand when those things compound over time? So it is, it is definitely like a compound effect. I mean, that is a good way to put it. So for folks who are in the financial world, compound interest, when we layer sort of these different types of trauma, uh, we call them maybe better words, vulnerabilities, things that make us vulnerable to the impact of trauma. Our socioeconomic status is one of those things. Our family history is one of those things. Our, the way our parents raised us, whether they were uh, neurotypical or whether they had mental health issues themselves are one of those things. They all come together to sort of facilitate our ability to adapt and change to the world around us. And sometimes we literally sometimes check every box. We have all these things going on with us. And that just presents even more challenges for us, especially if we're in uh, underrepresented, low SES, like I said, whatever, however we want to describe it in these coming from these kinds of neighborhoods. So I I get it that not only black people are poor, (laughs) uh, all kinds of minorities and folks are. I understand that. At the same time, uh, there are still differences between uh, impoverished white households and impoverished black households. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So, one, this has been... Uh, incredible. Uh, just getting to talk and hear your perspective. I think a lot of times when we hear folks who are, um, you know, licensed counselors in a space on a university campus, it's oftentimes uh, folks who have been in that position for 15, 20, 30 years. And so I feel like your mm-hmm. perspective is really helpful being a little bit closer in age to a, um, to your students and being able to relate yes. a little more closely. Um, last question here. When uh, one of the consensuses of uh, how do we move forward? What's the best way to uh, kind mm-hmm. of eliminate racism? Which, if we examine human nature, we're not going <laughs> to eliminate racism, right? But yeah. what are the what are the what are the ways that we move forward uh, as a multicultural society? in a healthy manner, um, it, there's all this talk of relationships. Well, we got to build better relationships and we got to, we got to have, uh, people on both sides, both different, um, opposing viewpoints, understanding each other and working together, maybe from, uh, from both perspectives. Uh, if, if you're a person of color walking through this time in history and the thought of, um, beginning to build bridges with, uh, majority culture folks or those who, uh, may appear hostile toward, um, you or toward your people of your ethnicity, culture, background, mm-hmm. if that's a scary thought, um, and, mm-hmm. and vice versa for majority culture people to, to confront, uh, a very ugly past in history of which you might not have had firsthand effect in, but, uh, you do have the opportunity to, to project change in the future. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the starting points for those relationships and how can people begin those conversations, maybe from both perspectives, uh, what would would be your thoughts there? So I have a little bit quick story to lead into this. So this past summer, right after George Floyd, uh, happened and we're having more and more deaths of our black men and we're having, we're revisiting some other ones. Other ones came back up to reinvestigate Breonna Taylor was happening, things of that nature. Uh, around July, I got pulled over in my little part of town and it was by a white police officer, two white male police officers. 
And when I saw the blue lights, I, let me even rewind back for that. I saw them behind me um, and I wasn't speeding. I wasn't doing anything. I was just driving. So as I was driving, I kept thinking to myself, you know, here we go. My heart's is starting to racing. We're going back to that vicarious trauma, right? I had seen the videos. I had seen everything. Um, my heart was racing. I'm shaking. I'm nervous. Right. I'm already on the phone with my husband. I'm like, they're behind me. So just in case, stay on the phone, da da da. Right. And we're, I'm driving. All of a sudden, as soon as I get to the light, they didn't put their lights on at that point. I'm thinking, okay, they're going to leave me alone, whatever. As soon as the light turns green, there they go. Blue lights are coming. Mm. So instantly, I, I freeze a little bit. Now, this is also me. I, in police situations, I'm never one to be like, oh, I know exactly what to do. I'm just going to pull over in a safe right. space. I stop wherever I am in that street. People <laughs> are coming. People are not coming. I stop <laughs> in the middle of that street. Throw your keys out the window. Nowhere. and <laughs> Throw the keys out the window. I'm just in the middle of the street, and I'm, I'm not, mm, right. hands, hands up, we're done. So right. when they walk up to the car, of course, he comes over, and he's like, can you pull over into the... <laughs> the driveway we can we can be off the street and i was like oh okay yes yes okay sure 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 i pull over i start bawling i am crying i am fearful because again i wasn't speeding i my tags are up to date i like what what did i do and i think what caused me the most fear was that it was two white men on either side of my car and i was the only one Mm. in my vehicle so I was trying to figure out why is what is all this all just to tell me that my tail light was out. Yeah. Mm. So I was just kind of curious as to why we need this much presence to tell me my tail light is out. And by the time he got my license and come back and noticed that I was distressed, he leaned in and he goes, "Look, I'm sorry. I just you're safe. I promise you're safe. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that your tail light was out. I apologize." And he tried to be as compassionate as he could in the moment. Yeah. I do not think I was in the place to receive it just then, but <laughs> later after I processed it, not just yet. <laughs> just, I need a minute. I'm sorry. Just give me a minute. <laughs> Let me be. Um, <sighs> but after, after I reflected on it, I, I did reflect and, and understand that no, he did not use any excessive force. No, he did not speak any rude words to me. No, he did not impose anything on me. He didn't ask me to move, get up in the car. He didn't ask me to do anything actually at all besides my license. Right. And I appreciate that. At the same time, just their sheer presence brought that on for me. Well, and you know, I I think, first of all, thank you for sharing that because it's not easy to share hard experiences uh, with, <laughs> with so many people, right, <laughs> in public. Um, I, I think about how, uh, how minds change over time, right? And how yeah. minds change over yeah. time is a repeated set of similar experiences that help yeah. you to change your formation of truth. And so I think mm-hmm. of, you know, one, I wish we knew names of the officers to be able to shout them out, right? And just to say, mm-hmm. like, look, and we know everyone uh, who is engaging in these conversations, no one thinks the totality of every human police officer on earth is there for the wrong purposes or for right. uh, wrong reasons. Um, however, anyone who studies history at all knows there is great reason to be uh, traumatized. Even your own stories of prior experiences or just thinking back a few summers to Sandra Bland's experience where it's right. the exact same reason right. for being pulled over. And it leads, yes. you know, so I, I think there's a, 
a compassion needed, and the officer showed exactly the right demeanor to, to show compassion, to assure you you were safe, to explain he just wanted you to tell. And maybe he's thinking of, I can't trust everyone in our own department, so I want to make sure I, I tell you your light's out so that you know to get it. You know, so right, it's, right. A, uh, it's an impossible job in this season to do um, <laughs> anyways with so much yeah. heightened um, attention like I think we know that uh, it, it leads for society and for those in the police force you're almost at an impossible place right so I think the 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 way forward one it's good to share stories like this just to know like I can say now I have had a positive experience where it didn't end in like in uh, another you know experience on the pile of trauma right but right. to also be able to share these stories for, like, it's so shocking that that was a great experience for you because that's not typically mm-hmm. been your experiences, right? And so for people to understand that um, and be able to give grace and compassion and empathy, knowing that was one of, you know, I, I've had, I've gotten pulled over a lot. I was a terrible driver as a teenager. Um, <laughs> and, and and honestly, several times doing things so stupid that teenagers mm-hmm. do that mm-hmm. I was, uh just by by my sheer nature of the way I look and the part of town I was in doing said stupid things um, that I had no reason to have heart racing, whatever, other than my dad is going to murder me if I, <laughs> if I bring home well, a ticket, right? Like yeah, I wasn't yeah. worried about anything on the officer's side, purely right, just worried right. about uh, I might, you know, be grounded from the car. I might have to pay this ticket and it, it might, mm-hmm. you know, take all my summer money away or whatever. Like I might right, lose my right. license. I, I was only thinking about the legal consequences uh, because I never expected to be in a worst case scenario with a bad officer. Right. And I've a had- A life or death scenario. A hundred percent. And and of yeah. the, I mean, maybe 20 times I've been pulled over in, in my driving mm-hmm. life. I, I've had one experience where I was fuming afterward, where I never mm-hmm. got a good reason for why I was pulled over. And hilariously, that one time that that happened- I was leaving is when we lived in, in Binghampton and I was um, uh, driving my black son to school mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I was in ministry. So I had a busted up car <laughs> because, because <laughs> I could not afford anything else. Right. So I'm like yep. pulling, I'm pulling off of a notorious drug corner in a car that looked like it had had a few, you know, run-ins with trees, baseball bats, whatever, <laughs> like <laughs> driving a busted up car with a little black kid in the back seat. And yeah. it didn't make sense to this officer why a young white guy would be pulling out in this situation. And uh, I got followed for about a mile and a half, pulled over. The worst part of this is it's it, it's my son's star student day at school. So I was oh, trying to no. leave a few minutes early to go get him donuts to take to his class. Yeah. Instead, he's checking in late. He misses the special treat that morning as part oh. of it. And, and, Worst of all, I mean, I'm, and I'm fuming after we get pulled over yeah, because yeah. the only thing that was asked was just, uh, so what were we doing back there in, in that, uh, in that corner back, back there? In, uh, in, and I said, that's where I live. He said, looks at my license to verify. Well, this wow. is, this is, this is, you know, whatever street you were on this street. And I said, well, yes, that street connects to my street. And this is the way I drive my son to school. And He's his son and looks back in the back seat, which, of course, I think most adoptive yeah. parents have had those experiences where, you, you know, and, had that moment. And you're just mm-hmm. and I, I'm an adult and can handle those conversations. Right. Uh, my at the time, 
six-year-old does not need oh. another notch in the belt of, oh, you don't belong in this situation, right? So yeah. uh, all that said, that's a terrible experience. It traumatized him, you know, probably, mm-hmm. probably lowercase t traumatized me. If anything, it just made me furious, right? And yeah. what I see on the, in the back end now is mm-hmm. being able to look and go, you know, one out of 20 isn't bad. One out of 20 gotcha. isn't bad. Yeah. I, I yeah. can I can live with that one experience, if nothing else, to now have a little a little tiny tiny little taste of empathy to understand. Like, yeah. you know, it does. It's awful to get pulled over uh, without it reason, is. without cause, and so. Yeah. Um, and I think too, it, we even with your story too, JD. That kind of goes back to what we as people of color to do to work towards each other, people of color, not people of color. One thing we have to do is with your son, probably in that moment, I'm sure you guys process that some way, somehow later, or maybe even revisit it now, right, um, right. is healing and trust. How do we foster healing and trust within ourselves and therefore be able to have healing and trust within our meso and micro organizations and environments we have around us? Yeah. Um, so doing that on a micro level with us, with each other, and then able to do that with the world around us. And as far as people, uh, non-people of color who are meeting us in the middle somewhere, developing that compassion, developing that education and understanding, whether it is from your books, your media, your exposure. You mentioned it earlier. I think that's the biggest changing factor when it comes to understanding this, that there are different narratives in yours is exposure. Get friends, be around people, join groups that look different from you, have diverse experiences. And as far as police officers, I've always been very curious what their training looks like, sure. just in general, sure. to be a police officer. And there's not even, sometimes not even um, race training or diversity training, diversity when it comes to mental health. There was a recent right. story about a young man who had autism that was shot because his mom was fearful and he had, he had gotten, he was having an episode and it was hard for yeah. her to, to get re, uh, reestablish control over the situation. So she called for help and they showed up and they shot her son. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I read that. So, I, I immediately yes. think of yeah, a lot. There's a lot of our listeners who who have um, kids who who are um, in some way, shape, or form on on the spectrum. Same as the boy mm-hmm. who was shot, and um, mm-hmm. and I and I think you you hear that in your heart immediately jumps into your throat. Breaks. Um, yeah, and I think that is one of the. And you mentioned the training. I think when you look at uh, some of the police departments that have. Um, reallocated resources to include mental health departments uh-huh. and to mm-hmm. really double down on community policing and on knowing um, the places where you're at. And I, I mean, I, it, there's a lot made of, um, oh gosh, in New Jersey. Um, uh, oh, I forgot the name of the town. So oh. uh, anyways, there's, there's been a lot made of, of some of the police departments that have that have done that. And I think that is um, probably on the horizon for us. I, I think that's what will come out of these discussions is um, as, as the reform conversations happen, um, mm-hmm. that tends to be one of the, one of the concessions that is almost immediately made is sure we can bring more people in to help us with, you know, mental health situations and all that. So uh, mm-hmm. I think we can hope, I think what we're learning in 2020 is that, uh, you know, when we look at suicide rates having, um, in some cases, in some demographics, doubled um, since the beginning mm-hmm. of the pandemic. Um, there is a broader conversation about the need for mental health, about the need for mental yes. health professionals in public spaces being made accessible to all communities um, because uh, the one thing that we know is anxiety, depression, um, and, and mental illnesses in general um, do not 
pick and choose based on zip code, based on household no. income, based on ethnicity or anything. So um, hopefully one thing we can all kind of get behind together um, is the the bump and the, and the push for mental health awareness and um, and for all of us to be kind of first responders in that case and, and help check in on our people and encourage them to um, get help when needed. So 2020 has definitely been for, at least at this point, you know, everyone starts off the year. This is the year of prosperity. All this, sure. stuff. <laughs> this is the year for me, um, humility and humanity. We really have to humanize each other and we have been humbled by everything oh, that has gone around us. Yeah. Well, my hope has been that uh, the resilience is being built in us right now, mm-hmm. um, that, that we can have some semblance of an awareness of that as it's happening um, yeah. so that we can build a little bit of gratitude and thankfulness. Um, you know, running hills is not easy or fun, uh, but you kind of know if you do it enough times, this burns and it's going to help me later, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that all of us who are really going through it right now, um, as we're aware of that, we can also be aware of the, the strength and the muscle that's being built um, in us to be able to have that slapback power you talked about um, and to have some resilience, you know, um, um, coming out of this so that hopefully, you know, 2021 can be our year. <laughs> oh, please, please. <laughs> oh, man. Um, it's hard to imagine it could be worse, right? So, right. Um, Brittany, thank you so ask. much. Thank you so much for joining us and, and for course. being here with us. Um, this has been great. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll link in the show notes kind of where to, where to find and read your work and where to follow along with you. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much again. Thank you for having me, yes. Absolutely. Well, that's going to do it for us today on the Empowered to Connect podcast. Uh, I want to let you know about an important series we have coming up. We, we know that uh, a lot of you who are listening uh, today are either parents of or caregivers of or loved ones of uh, those who have uh, either chosen to foster or adopt transracially. And so uh, the conversation about uh, transracial adoption and transracial fostering and uh, really caregiving for those of a different ethnicity than yourselves is one that's been going on for a long time. But uh, we wanted to do a series particularly focused on the nuances of that. And so uh, we have got some awesome, awesome guests lined up that you're going to love. These are going to be some conversations that will be very helpful for us as we move forward. And uh, so if you've got folks in your life who have adopted transracially or or really more importantly, who are thinking about adopting transracially and they're just trying to find all the information they can, uh, please lock in with us over the next couple of weeks. Uh, We are going to have uh, a bunch of conversations about transracial adoption and uh, fostering, and it's going to be uh, really powerful and really informative and really interesting and all those things. And so uh, we hope to keep seeing you tune in here on the Empowered to Connect podcast. Our show is edited and engineered by the fearless Kyle Wright and the incredible one and only Tad Jewett brings us our music each and every week. And we are honored to have both them on the team. So for Tana Ottinger, for Mo Ottinger, for myself, uh, this has been the Empowered to Connect podcast. We hope to see you next week.